This season of The Peaches Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Silverette. Now, many of you will know that this is a product that I have long sung at the praises of. In fact, these little cups made up of antifungal, antimicrobial, healing, medical grade silver single-handedly saved my left nipple from early retirement when it came to breastfeeding. These are my go-to gift for any new mum. The Silverettes are simplistic genius. Little cups to protect and heal your nipples when you are in the trenches of learning how to breastfeed. Sore, oversensitive, cracked or even bleeding nips, no more. Guys, I have an exclusive discount for anyone wanting to give the new mum in their life the gift they will be thanking you for in years to come. 20% off using the code TORY20. Simply head to silverettaustralia.com. Now, this expires on the 30th of June, 2023, so you don't want to muck about. The link is in our show notes. Welcome back to the Peaches podcast. Now, you may have heard the name Maz Compton over the years, and that is because Maz is a bit of an Aussie great when it comes to media. She has been a personality in the space for over 12 years with experience in radio, TV and online media. But what you might not know about Maz is that she has battled with her relationship with booze. Regular drinks and parties are stock standard in the media scene and drinking high volumes often was not only accepted but encouraged, let's be honest. And soon Maz noticed that booze had become a bit of a coping mechanism for stress before slowly creeping towards dependence. Now, if this sounds familiar, buckle up, Peachy, because this episode is for you. I just love the way that Maz isn't afraid to have the conversation around drinking. Within Australia, it's kind of a glorified answer to everything from celebrations, stress relief, practically any social engagement. And for many, it's simply routine. But why is it that our ears prick up and our irritations arise when a mate turns you down for a drink at the pub? Are our reactions to someone going sober or just even taking a break from the booze getting a little bit judgmental and perhaps unhelpful? Especially when we remember that alcohol, whether we like it or not, is actually a toxin. It screws with our sleep, our moods, our weight and our overall health. So guys, I cannot wait to dive into all of this today. I know that Maz is going to give me the unapologetic truths that we all need to hear because I'm going to be honest, when I am not with child, I do really enjoy a wine or two or three or four. Um, Welcome, Maz. Tori, Tori, Tori. It has been a long time between drinks. <laughs> Babes, it's been a few years. I'm pretty sure the last time I saw you, um, we just said off off air that um, we were probs a bit fucked up. 
<laughs> yeah, we it was definitely someone's 30th or something. Like we kicked around um, in the same circle with a group of mates when I was doing radio about, yeah, a decade or so ago. And um, But I quit drinking about eight years ago. So um, I thank you for such a wonderful intro and for really setting, I guess, like the tone of the conversation because I'm ready to have it. I'm so chomping at the bit to change the narrative around alcohol in Australia and really um, deliver the the truth about what alcohol is like let's let's actually talk about what it is why we become dependent on it um and how we can maybe change that yep absolutely well for those of you who don't know um maz has actually gone on to start a podcast about this very theme it's called last drinks Mads, I'm going to go ahead and read the description because I thought it was really excellent. Did you write it? Thanks. Of course I you did. wrote it. Of course you did. <laughs> we're, we're DIY girls. Um, yes. We don't get people to write our content for us. Okay. Last Drinks is a new conversation about how to live an awesome life without alcohol. Hosted by radio personality Maz Compton, who has been sober since 2015, with the hope to reframe the cultural norm of alcohol in our society explore sobriety sober curiosity through the lens of honest engaging conversations that empower people to redefine their relationship with alcohol i mean i'm my ears have pricked up i'm (laughs) i'm currently sober because i'm pregnant um but i have had those moments where i'm like you know i know that i'm waking up and my motivation levels because i had you know just a couple of glasses of wine last night they're not there um And anyway, God, there's so much to talk about. Can we just take a step back in time in this journey yes. and talk Please. about where it all began? And can you maybe maybe start with telling us like what an average day in your life looked like before you realised that you might be a little bit dependent on booze? Uh, I was a lot depend- dependent on booze. <laughs> um, so I feel like, well, you know what? The reason why I called the podcast Last Drinks, and that's the name of my book as well, Last Drinks, it's a sober curiosity handbook um, that'll be out in July. The reason why I called it Last Drinks is because I feel like my sobriety story began when I decided to have my last drink. Like nothing that I talk about in sobriety is possible unless I had that last drink and it's a really defining line in the sand moment. And I didn't want to hone in on talking about people's rock bottom or like when was the shittiest thing that ever happened to you that made you realise you needed to quit drinking. Like I really wanted to, I feel like um, when people talk about their last drink, it, it is a defining moment in their life. It's an uplifting one because you're crossing over into a new norm and you're living life without the multi-tool of coping, which is alcohol. So for me... Um, 2014 was a really, really pivotal year. I, as you would know, like I had spent my 20s and early 30s really climbing the media ladder and I climbed it fast and I climbed it hard. And I, in 2014, got to kind of what I imagined in my brain is like the top of the radio game. I was hosting the National Drive show. Um, I had a wickedly hilarious comedic co-host in Dan DeBoof. I was just killing it like my face was on billboards I had like this epic contract with like tons of money and I was interviewing celebrities every five minutes and like giving Jared Leto massages and just like on the shoulders just to clarify um (laughs) (laughs) but I was like on paper 
killing the game. Um, and then I would go home from work and I would drive through the drive through bottle shop and I would buy a bottle of Savion Blanc and a bottle of Pinot just in case. And I would walk in my front door, undo my freaking bra strap because, God, I love that feeling, and pour a glass of wine. And I would, like, mill around the house and drink wine and then cook some dinner and drink wine, and I would drink a bottle of wine pretty much every night. And it got to a point where during that year I remember thinking to myself, shit, (laughs) I don't want to do this anymore, but I'm so used to just drinking all the time. And I was never, like, crazy wild in the aisles, like, The worst thing that we do is I would maybe jump on Twitter and like be, you know, like engage in a bit of banter. A little bit sloppy, a little bit chatty. Yeah, a couple of typos. And that as somebody who I love language and I'm a writer for God's sake. So like typos on my Twitter feed were really frustrating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think I in that year of 2014, I was thinking about alcohol a lot and how I didn't want to drink, but I absolutely couldn't fathom getting through a day without it because my stress was so big, the load was so high, the imposter syndrome was so real, I had no break. There was no, I had to get up and do a show and I'm not complaining, but it was like back to back to back and my whole life was scheduled. It was like, we need you here for this interview, then you've got to go here for this dress fitting and then you need to host this event. And because my life was so scheduled down to the microsecond, I feel like I had no control And in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, well, at least I had control over what I drank. So it gave me this power, which is the irony that drinking made me feel powerful when I actually became powerless under it. It's this whole weird, like, fucked up microcosm when you think about it. But um, that was 2014. Drinking all the time. Never super crazy chaotic, like few big nights, couple of hangovers, couple of cheeky voms, pretty normal stuff. Couple of blackouts, meh. Nothing bad ever happened. I'm lucky. Could have ended up in some terrible situations. Kind of didn't. Um, but I, I actually remember- think. Sorry to interrupt that train of thought, but I think that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you is because I think there's a lot of people out there who are abusing alcohol, using it as a stress relief, using it um, as a way to go to sleep every night, using it as a coping mechanism for even like, I know a few people who um, it's almost like they can air their grievances once they've had a few drinks and then they're like really, really nice and sweet when they're sober and it's quite interesting watching it. And I wanted to have the conversation with you because you weren't, a mess. You weren't in rehab. No. You weren't on the streets. And I think people excuse themselves by saying, oh, I don't have a problem, but is it affecting your life in a negative way? I guess that's the question we're trying to ask, right? That is, you are so, so spot on with that theory. It is that, and, and so, so let me just quickly fit, like, because it kind of ties back into what yeah. you just said. So drinking all the time, thinking about stopping no idea how to do it. The thought of not drinking on a weekend. So I remember it was my friend Carly's 30th. You can't go to a 30th and not drink. That is just blasphemy, particularly in Australia. I had this conversation with myself in the mirror. I was like, I don't want to go to my friend's birthday because I don't want to drink. That's insane. Like, can't? I? But I can't go and not drink like it did it it didn't even compute in my head as an option but that was the start of the sober curiosity for me and then it kind of escalated and um 
I there was a really hectic personal tragedy in my life in September of that year and I really spiraled pretty fast and I I realized in those few weeks that my way of dealing with anything was to drink alcohol and not feel the feelings because I didn't know how to process the feelings. So in that month, I actually Googled, am I an alcoholic? And that was not helpful (laughs) because I read like the AA kind of manifesto and I was like, that doesn't resonate with me. I'm not that. Um, But what am I then? Because I'm not sober. I can't imagine getting through a weekend without drinking, but I'm not like chaos. I'm not leaving Las Vegas. I'm not, but if I keep going this way, I think year on year, my tolerance is increasing, which means I need to drink more to feel more of a buzz. I, I get blackout drunk um, more often. Like it was heading in a really scary direction. And so it was in those few months that I was like, oh, God, I just heard the voice of my mother, like, ringing through my head. And she's like, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And I was like, okay, kiddo, if you are doing the same behavior and expecting a different result, that's crazy. So what is the result that you want? So what do you need to change? And it was through this self-talk that I arrived at. The one thing I'm doing all the time that's getting me the result that I don't want is drinking. So maybe if I stop drinking for a little bit, I might see that there's another side to this story and I'm willing to gamble it all and risk it all and commit social suicide uh, in order to get, which is what it felt like. That was a very real thing that I was afraid of, that I would lose all of my friends. I might even lose my job. I was, I had so much to gamble in my head and none of those things were real which we can unpack later but I got to this place where I was like I've got to change something I'm going to change something so I decided to stop drinking on the 1st of January 2015 and I have not had a drink since that day. I mean one of my questions is around that so I think there's a lot of people like I've done a dry July years and years ago Chris and I did it before we were married, we were pretty young, living in a share house, and we were doing a big trip in the States. And um, one of the main reasons we did it was because we were just spending a stupid amount of money. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you have a few drinks and then you're buying shots at the bar and then no Jaeger bombs are on me. And then, you know, you're getting taxis. I think this was even before Uber. Um, You know, you're eating late night shit. You're waking up the next day eating shit because you've made the excuse for yourself that you're hungover. And we saved so much money. And I, more so than Chris, felt really, really, really good as well. Like I couldn't believe the difference in my energy levels and stuff like that. But I think my point is that like a lot of people do it for like raise money or take a break, save some money, whatever. Um, Was it really important to you that it was like cut and dry and not like, oh, I can, you know, I still have a glass of wine on a Saturday. Why why, why all or nothing matters? I am an all or nothing person for sure. I had tapped into Dry July and I love Dry July. I'm an ambassador for them. I think what they do is absolutely incredible. Um, But my my personal reasons for doing Dry July before 2015 was to prove to myself that I didn't have a drinking problem because I was like, well, if I can take a month off and raise some money for charity, like tick, 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 doing all the good things, and then I'd have a really wet August. (laughs) And, And it was proof to myself it's like if you can do four weeks off alcohol, then you're 
you're smooth sailing, sister. You ain't got no problem. It's no big deal. And for me, the switch came when I realized I wanted to do better for longer. And so my intention that I set at the beginning of January 2015 was really different to how I would go into a dry July situation. My intention at the beginning of January 2015 was to try and find out who I was sober. And so it was a lot of digging in. It was a lot of journaling. It was, and I really, um, I didn't just not drink. I did some work on myself. So I kind of wanted to figure out why I was leaning on alcohol. Like, why did I need a few drinks before I hosted an event? Like, why couldn't I just get up and host the event? And so I kind of figured out in that month, like all of the things that I used alcohol for, I realized I could find other tools for. So I call alcohol the multi-tool of coping. And I think it's simply just because I didn't have any other tools in my toolkit. I didn't know how to process the trauma of a divorce. I didn't know how to process the grief of my friend dying suddenly. I didn't know, and, and good stuff happened in my life too. I didn't know how to handle success. I didn't know how to be on billboards. I didn't know how to hold my own space in a room full of celebrities and not feel like there was something weird about me being there. And all of these things happened in my life. And the one thing that I lent on to deal with it or to cope with it was alcohol. And what I started to discover in that month without alcohol is I could still do my job, show up to my relationships um, and do the stuff that I wanted to do and not drink. And the result was actually better. And so when I started to kind of tap into that, that kind of became my new obsession in a way, like, like how I was always so intense in my career and how I am an all or nothing person. I became all or nothing in sobriety. I was like, well, that's kind of it. Even though I never, definitely in the first sort of six months, I never said I'm never drinking again. I was just like, oh, I'm just not drinking for now. I'm just going to see how we go. Um, but now I can, I can say like, I, I will never have an alcoholic beverage again in my life. Like I'm so, so done. Uh, it's eight years. I'm eight years in. Um, and again, it's like this, there's a progressive revelation with sobriety. It's like how each year, year on year, and I don't know if this is the same for you, Tori, but like, if you do drink each year, you need a little bit more alcohol. Like each year you can tolerate a little bit more alcohol, um, like might have taken three sips to get a little bit of a buzz when you were 18 and now it takes like maybe a glass and a bit of wine to get the same buzz. So uh, it's like that's the progressive revelation of alcohol dependence. I'm experiencing the progressive revelation of sobriety, which is like year on year on year on year, the compounded benefits of being sober literally blow my brain and have exploded my life in the most amazing way. And I, I would not give anything up that I experience now in life for even a sip of alcohol because it's just not worth it for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's take a step back. What was the reaction of your inner circle, like your closest friends and family, when it became clear that this wasn't Maz doing dry July, this was Maz like, guys, I'm actually not necessarily quitting, but like, I'm not drinking for now. Like were you met with support? Were you met with, like I sort of said in my preamble, I don't, and I've been this person. I have been this fucking person who's been like, Oh, for God's sakes, I'm not drinking. They're going to be so boring. Like we've all done it. I will at least, I think I hope we have like, how did, how did your circle react? Um, so I told my mom and my, at the time boyfriend, who's now my husband, uh, in October of 2014 that I really believed that I had a drinking problem and a, 
and alcohol dependence and they were both quite shocked um, because I hit it really well. And I said, I'm going to take some time off in January. I'm not asking for your opinion. I'm asking for your support and got full support. And then I didn't make an announcement on social media. I just kind of stopped drinking and then I would answer the question when I was asked it. So, um, and had I had my time again, I would have been way more prepared with a sober response, which is what I encourage people to have before they stop drinking is have a one sentence response as to why and then just because everyone always wants to know why it's not enough yeah. to just say I'm not drinking tonight why yeah are you pregnant yeah <laughs> are oh you trying yeah so so oh my god that, and that's so loaded like fertility is so loaded for so many people so um uh, initially I kept um I was so I got this other this new job the other one of the other reasons why I really wanted to quit is because um I had this other really kick-ass job that I got and I was like oh I really don't think I can do that job and be a mess <laughs> mm. and I don't want to ruin that opportunity so um and, and it was heading into messy town uh so I kept doing work stuff and going to social events and I was just met with a fair bit of resistance but I think I probably have a slight strain of oppositional defiance disorder so I would just be like yeah, I'm not drinking, whatever, and, like, kind of sussy about it. Um, so I had a few people say, like, you're so boring, like, come and talk to me when you're drinking again. Like, what are you doing that for? And what I've realised now is that that all you're doing when you stop drinking is you hold a mirror up for somebody else's behaviour. And if they're not cool with their relationship with alcohol and you're trying to reframe yours, that can be a little bit confronting. So um, my to answer your question... My immediate family and closest friends were fully supportive, um, probably surprised at three months that I was still not drinking, to be honest. I think they probably all thought she's just going to dry out for a few weeks and then carry on. But I had such a huge paradigm shift during that time that I was like, oh, I think I've tapped into some sort of weird superpower in life and I'm going to keep going. And then, yeah, Friendships did drop off the radar for sure, especially that year coincided with me getting out of the radio game for a little while, not by choice, just by being a casualty of some management changes. And so um, naturally my whole kind of social life shifted in that year. Um, So there was, yeah, there was some pushback. There was some dickheads. um, And then there was some support. It was, it was a real mix Um, And as I said, I wish looking back now I had a clearer, more defined response to go into those social situations. What is it called again, your sober response? Sober response. What's yours? So so, um, it depends on the day, but um, early in my sobriety it would be something like this. So if somebody said like, oh, you're not drinking, what happened? Um, I would say, you know what, I'm taking some time off for health reasons. Mm. And then I would shut up. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, you can't fucking argue with that, can you? No. And I think what we do as well, and especially because I was still convincing myself that this was a good idea, I would overcompensate with explanation, right? So I would be like, oh, well, so like my friend died in September and I didn't really deal with the grief very well. And so then I've decided that maybe to honour his life, I'm not going to drink for a bit because he was 10 years sober. And so that like is part of my grit. And I just had this really elaborate, and not to say that any of those things were untrue, 
but they were really unnecessary to say to some idiot called Brad at some random bar that I was at, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know who you are. Why am I telling you my I'm an over-explainer too. I, I put right. it down to me being a people pleaser. Like I find it so yes. hard to say no. If I say yes. no, it's followed by two paragraphs of um, reasons, apologies, oh excuses. Yes. And this is the other thing on that, Tori, I am a huge over-apologiser. And so for the first sort of two months, if somebody said to me, um, do you want a drink? I'd be like, no, sorry, I'm not drinking. And I'd apologise. And then after about three or four months, I was like, why? I'm not sorry that I'm sober. I'm not sorry that I'm not drinking. And I stopped apologising. And it was when I stopped saying sorry and I would just say, I'm good, thanks, or I've got a water, I felt really empowered and I didn't feel like I kind of, you know, like I didn't, you know how turtles like go into their shell? <laughs> Sometimes at the bar I'd be like, oh, I want to go into my shell. Oh. But I felt like I could really stand in my power and just go, no, not apologising. I am good. And it was, and that felt really good to be able to, but again, it took, it took a while. Everything's a process. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I do want to talk a little bit more because I know that the listeners are going to be really intrigued and I am very intrigued. I want to talk more about why, why you think you had a problem and what, what was it that was being negatively impacted in your life? Can you give us a few examples and maybe a few sort of stories? Yeah. So look, I started drinking when I was 15. I went to a party. It was the uh, after party for the Wiz musical of which I played a munchkin because uh, I'm five foot nothing. <laughs> naturally. Uh, naturally. <laughs> and it was our year, tw- year 10, 11, 11, year 11. Anyway. And uh, I drank bourbon out of a bottle on the way to the after party. I'd never drunk alcohol before. I'd never really been around alcohol. I think I'd had a West Coast cooler at Sizzler once. This is such a story in the 90s. <laughs> and um, and my, I think my dad was like, have a West Coast cooler. Like you're 15 or whatever. It's fine. But I went to this party. My, um, my whole desire was to get drunk because it sounded exciting and rebellious and appealing. I... Didn't even make it to the party. I passed out. My friend Amy had to call her mum to come and get me off the street. I vomited everywhere. My friend's mum threw me in the shower at their house before she called my parents and said, hey, uh, Maz has had a bit too much to drink. Can you come and pick her up? I just, I I have to interrupt you to say that... um, that is a story, like that story to me is the most familiar thing in the world for me and my girlfriends, At, but it's actually not something that any of us, and maybe wrongly so, are embarrassed about. It's literally like seen as a rite of passage. We did it, we didn't just do it once, we did it well into our early 20s, and we look back and we laugh, and I kind of look at those times like I kind of had to do that because... Um, I don't know, I just needed to push the envelope and feel like I was having fun, which I, I look, I, you know, when I, when I have this conversation with you now, it makes me wonder, like, is that healthy? I don't know. But I, I don't know, like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just such a funny introduction into alcohol that I would say a lot or, or like, you know, 80, 90% of young Australians did exactly that. Yeah. As, a, as a teen. And if they waited until their 20s because they had really strict parents, I feel like they always went way overboard way because worse. they should have just done it when they were a teenager and mum and dad yeah. could come and get them. Yeah, and there's so many problems with um, 
with this situation, right? There's so many reasons why this is not okay. Um, but I, I really did feel like it was something that was inevitable mm-hmm. and I felt like I was so, I was humiliated. I remember I walked into school on Monday and I had to go into another class to deliver a message to a teacher and I walked in and all the boys in the back of Mrs. Berenger's class just started making vomiting sounds and laughing at me. Like I was so humiliated and because I was the girl that vomited at the party and all the stuff. Um, And you would think after such an adverse experience with alcohol that I would have gone... Well, I'm not going to do that again because that was just horrible. But a few weeks later, there we are, and I managed to hold my alcohol the next time I drink. And so I don't end up with this chaotic story. Suzanne Brown ends up in emergency, and I'm like, well, at least I didn't end up in emergency. I'm okay. And I think we, from a very early age with alcohol, define our relationship with alcohol by well, it's not as bad as the next person, so therefore I'm okay. And that's really, really dangerous because what I should have realised, and look, I was only 15 and there was no education about it. There was no conversation with my parents about it. They were just like, how dare you embarrass us? Don't you dare embarrass us like that again. Um, And I think I wish I had had the self-worth to go, you deserve better than that. Don't treat your body like that. Don't. And if I had have known what was happening in my body and my brain, which I now understand because I've spoken to a neuroscientist about what alcohol does to our brain, which I'm happy to talk about, Mm. I wish I had have known that then and I would have made a different choice. But I think because of that introduction, it just became, and then it's like high school parties, we all drink. Some people get chaotic. Some Daniel Crichton was like the most chaotic drunk person in our year at school. I remember him once, he like jumped in the pool with his clothes on, got his wet shoe and put it on a, a burning barbecue and was trying to set his feet on fire. And it's like this, all this behaviour is happening because everyone's so out of control, wasted, but it's super normal. Mm-hmm. And there lies the issue that that that, you know, that we are introduced to this substance that changes our brain chemistry and in some ways it can help you feel relaxed and in other ways it can send you off the rails and it's roll the dice because you don't know which way it's going to fly depending on the environment, the amount of alcohol you've had, what you've had to eat, you know, that day and and all of the surrounding um, circumstances. So I had a really, like baptism by fire intro to alcohol and then I just drank every kind of weekend and it was weekends and weekends and weekends until it was Thursday and Friday and Saturday and it was Thursday and Friday and Saturday until I moved out of home when I was in my early 20s and I worked at a radio station and there was an alcohol cupboard open on a Monday afternoon and but then I wouldn't drink on a Tuesday and that was cool or a Wednesday sometimes I wouldn't drink on a Thursday but I would drink on a like I couldn't get through a week without um, alcohol, not because I had a dependency at that point. It's just what you did. It was so normalized. It was so encouraged. It was just the way things were. And then at some point, probably in my late twenties, I really started like, I would sit at home maybe alone and watch a movie and drink a glass or two of wine. So I started, it was when it encroached into 
just me time that I was like, huh, this is helping the anxiety subside. This is helping me relax. This is helping me sleep. All not true, but um, I can explain why those things feel real, even though they're not. So I think it's just this, this consistent thing in my world that was just there all the time. And then the older I got, the bigger the stress got in my life, the crazier my, um, like my ups and downs got bigger. And so to cope, I used alcohol because it sort of, it kept everything at bay. And it sort of, for me at the time, it was like, I'm stressed. This is the stress relief. Uh, I need to relax. Here's a relaxant. Uh, I need to ramp up this will help me ramp up. And it just became my tool on how I could be a chameleon in all the environments that I needed to be. And then it was the thing that would like switch me off at the end of the day with an overactive imagination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about um, the way alcohol can be a blanket response to stress, trauma, anger, irritation, Um uh, A perfect example is like a really um, stock standard response for my husband and I, if we've had a fucked day um, at work and when you're in a um, service industry and a business that's open seven days a week and you have people contacting you through every modality, whether it's phone, email, Instagram, physically in person, and they all want something from you and sometimes people aren't that nice sometimes people I actually want to do an episode on this I don't know why but there has become a norm particularly online where the consumer talks to their service provider in such an aggressive way like off the bat just like just before they've even, you know, had a chance to explain what question they want answered or or the issue that they've had. And sometimes, you know, we get to the end of the week and Chris and I would be like, that was a fucking stressful day. Let's grab a bottle of wine. Or like, you know, we've been in emergency all day because Izzy was sick. We finally get home. Oh, my God, get a bottle of wine and fucking crack it open, you know. And I do... I don't actually see that as problematic for me personally, although I am certainly curious um, and I'm wanting to reduce what I drink when I'm not pregnant. Um, I do want to do that because I do know that it affects my creativity and also just my health. Like I really, I want to deep dive into health after this. But what I want to talk about is like not necessarily the work stuff, but if you've had a shitty day mm. and you are trying to process something in, instead of opening a bottle of wine and maybe talking about it for two minutes but then actually just using the alcohol to kind of like m- muddy the freaking waters, yeah, you know, what would happen if we said, hey, like, let's talk about why we feel so frustrated today. Let's talk about what happened in emergency with our little baby daughter and how confronting it was seeing her there and wow. and why we feel that way. And maybe the next morning we would wake up thinking we've spoken about it. We didn't just drink and then put a blanket over it. Yeah. Um, why I do you think? think yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think the best way to answer this is to just explain what alcohol does to your brain. And then you'll understand. So 
When you first drink alcohol, so alcohol changes your brain chemistry. Okay. So that's why when some people drink, they become a different person. It's because they're literally out of their mind. Their brain is not working normally. So when you consume alcohol, the first thing it does in your brain is it releases serotonin, which is a chill. So, you know, if you like, this is why you have a stressful day, have a glass of wine, the neurotransmitters secrete the hormone serotonin in your brain and you feel relaxed. But serotonin is like a hormone chemical release that can happen in many, many, many different ways. And it's, it's part of our natural brain chemistry, but alcohol triggers it. So that's why if you've had a stressful day, what we're used to if you drink alcohol is the serotonin, relax, chill, um, oh, relief. And what you want is the relief and what you think gives you the relief is the alcohol, but it's not. What you what the relief is is the chemical release in your brain. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you so, could go and get that same serotonin release from something else is what you're trying to say. Correct. Yeah. But the, the tool that we use to get it is alcohol because it's so instant and it's so apparent and it's so real. It's a, it's a tangible, I don't want to say benefit, but it's a tangible experience that alcohol gives us. It's a chemical hormonal release in your brain. So what happens is you've got serotonin, 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 and then at some point alcohol triggers dopamine. That's the feel-good party hormone in your in your brain, in your in your neural pathways, in your brain chemistry. Um, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I know if a brain scientist is listening to this, they're like, oh God, you're not doing a good job, but I'm trying. Um, so serotonin, 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 and then at some point it's the dopamine switch. That's when you decide to start texting people to go out after you've been sit- sitting on the couch. That's when you start dancing on tables. That's when you lose your inhibitions. And again, dopamine is a natural wiring circuitry in the brain. It's your pleasure center. It can get activated by many, many things, but alcohol does trigger it as well. And so what we've learned to do is drink to chill or drink to go out. And we, what we need to understand is how our brains work and how we can activate those um, chemical releases and that hormonal release without alcohol. Alcohol is just that really easy thing that um, one-on-one is two. But we can take that out of the situation completely and still experience chill or up. Let me give you an example. So... I have a cold shower every morning, um, ice cold, like the coldest of cold. And what a, a cold immersion therapy releases more dopamine in the brain than a line of cocaine. There's studies to, pro- to prove this. I've never done cocaine, so I don't know what that feels like, but I feel like people understand usually when someone's taking a party drug like that, it's because they want to be up. It's hitting their pleasure center. It's activating the dopamine in their brain and it's bringing them an up feeling. A cold shower gives you more of a dopamine hit than that party drug, right? So for me, I get up in the morning and I have a cold shower and people are like, you're crazy. And I'm like, yeah, I am, but I want to feel good. And so I have this cold shower and I'm like up and about. I get up at four in the morning. I do breakfast radio. I have to be on my A game at 6 a.m. Um And so that's how I get my up. And it's a really simple thing that we've learned from study and and like Wim Hof and all these wonderful people that have done some really crazy things with cold immersion therapy and breath work that you can actually activate 
all of that stuff in your brain and in your body without any external influence or substance at all. It's just a cold shower and away you go. Um, and so, like, the reverse is true for that that um, that come down. There's studies showing that, like, if you go for a walk in nature, like if you immerse yourself in nature, take off your shoes, ground into the vibration of the earth, getting a bit spiritual, but here we are, um, that that releases serotonin. And so that can be your relax. You know, sometimes you, you walk outside and you have some fresh air and you're like, oh, how good that feels. That's serotonin. It's the same thing that alcohol is giving you, but it's way cheaper. It's free. It's outside your front door. It's endless supply. And we, I think, have just forgotten that those things exist. And so we've used this substance. We've used this, like, man-made um, thing to activate the stuff in our brain that nature has already set up for us, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I think that's why there is this huge, huge reliance on using alcohol as a coping mechanism because it does do something in the circuitry in your brain. It does. It may, it helps you bring on those relaxed feelings. But the gamut of negative effects of alcohol are absolutely not worth it. So if we want to go into how you can maybe feel relaxed at the end of the day, but you're also increasing your chance of breast cancer by up to 30%, which is a fact that's scientifically proven. There's empirical studies. There's a link between alcohol and cancer risk. So like you could have a really shitty day and then have a glass of wine, but you've now put a carcinogen in your body and that's going to cause so much havoc if that does actually turn into something cancerous, mm. right? Like if those free radicals have gone crazy and for whatever reason it, it manifests in your body as something else, any amount of alcohol is increasing your risk of that. So now tell me how much you really want to relax at the end of the day and and if you're willing to find a more productive way to find that <sighs> moment than putting a carcinogen in your body. And I think there's not been enough talk about how damaging alcohol is. And it's not just like risk of injury and silly decisions and losing wallets. It's mm. like real world impacts. Like it it can eat away at your brain circuitry. I think that's, that's the thing. I think there's a lot of people who are like, oh, well, I just have my wine and I go to bed. Like I'm not, I'm not going to embarrass myself. I would never get in the car drinking. I would never do this. But like I kind of want to take a step back and talk about the two parts of my brain that responded Um, when I heard you talking about other ways to get that dopamine and the serotonin, right? Yeah. My more work side, my sober curiosity side was like, it's fucking, you know, you can do it in other ways. My, um, my side that is a little bit judgmental and to be frank, lazy, doesn't want to change, doesn't want to hear it. Mm. Here's you go, I have a cold shower at four in the morning and they go, well, I'm not going to fucking do that I'm not I'm not I don't want to have a cold shower yuck uncomfortable also it's all very well for her to say because she's some health crusader and I live in the real world and you know the reality for me is that I just want to have my wine at the end of the day do you know what I mean like and I know lots of people who 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 have that side of them are gonna would, would have listened to that and said that's that sounds great I might try a cold shower once but that's never fucking gonna be me and I think The reality is it's because we're lazy and we don't want to do it and we don't want to try it. And it's so easy to excuse away someone's 
radical idea of health as being radical. Like I have family members who like think that I'm crazy healthy because I don't like drink soft drink and like fucking have a ciggy on the weekend and like eat processed food and have fruit juice in the fridge. Like they literally think, oh, Tori's really OCD. She's really over the top. Like she's in like that Sydney scene. So I can cut like, and I get really frustrated thinking it's, I'm, I'm just trying to not die here. I'm trying to not have depression and be fucking clinically obese. And the same can yeah. be said for you where you're like, I'm just trying to not give myself cancer by like cutting booze out. But it's, it's the, the web is, is very intricate. And I think that what we do is we go, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to be that all or nothing person, but we're not actually allowing ourselves to absorb how dangerous it is. We've talked, we've touched on cancer and I want to talk about that a little bit more. Like when I was writing the, um, when I was researching for this episode, I read some of my like scripted, um, intro allowed to my husband and I said you know it fucks with the sleep we know we know that alcohol even though people think it helps them sleep it may it may help them fall asleep we it the science has proven that in fact you have a very disrupted sleep we also know that alcohol um contributes to weight gain um we know that alcohol your body will not start digesting the food and processing the food that you've eaten until it has processed the alcohol. And I think I said mood or, or general health. And Chris said, oh, don't forget it's a carcinogen. Um, and it, and yeah. I was like, oh, fuck, yeah, it is too. And it's funny because, yeah. like, we're two people who, like, really enjoy a drink. Um, mm. So I guess I'm just, I don't know, I'm 30 weeks pregnant. Clearly I'm rambling. Sorry about that. Oh, my my brain is not functioning as it once did. My The whole point of that ramble is can we – even though part of me is going to die a little bit when I hear it, can we talk a little bit about the realities of the effects, the health effects of booze? hundred percent. You And you know what? You make a really good point, Tori. Some people aren't going to want to hear this. I don't want to hear and, it. And that's okay because I love this. I think it's a Jewish proverb or a Buddhist monk or someone in the Zen world said, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And until you are ready to go down this road and accept the truth about alcohol, you will have your blinders on and that is fine because that's going to be your story. And that's not you personally. I mean, people listening, that's cool. And I think at the end of the day, um, I I don't feel like having... Like for me, I have a cold shower in the morning because it works for me. I do what works for me. It's everyone's responsibility to do what works for them. If a cold shower is not your jam, find something else. Go for a walk, exercise. So many other things that we can do uh, with our hands, with our time, with our bodies, with our brain, other than drink alcohol. With your hands, so, hey, tell me more about that. With your hands. Um, <laughs> would you know what? When I By yourself or with someone? Or either all. Just asking for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) When when I first stopped drinking, I would feel so awkward at the at a bar without a drink. I did I was like, I don't know what to do with my hands. So I would just eat the hors d'oeuvres because I'm like, at least I'm because we're so used to having a drink, it feels so weird. Um, but back to the negative impact. So I can keep it really simple. There's not one benefit to drinking alcohol. It, that's just the facts. So there are zero benefits. There, there, it isn't good for you in any way, shape or but form. But what about 
that study that I hold on to, red wine and, um, you know, what do they call them? Antioxidants and all that. I hate to tell you. Tell me, don't take away my antioxidants. That's been debunked, that one. Yeah. I spoke to an addiction expert about that specific study. It's in one of my podcast episodes. His name's Dr. Buddy, um, and he is an addiction expert at Calm Line. So he talks, he is helps people in recovery from alcohol addiction. And we did, we talked about, I was like, but what about the studies that say like a glass of red wine is okay for your heart? And he's like, that's all been debunked. It was, it was a study that was done and I think it was hastily published and then I think the media just like latched onto it and they're like, alcohol's good for you, we can have red wine. Um, and that has been completely debunked and they've actually issued like a, a retract on that study to say that that is completely, they've done more research, there's more data and the data shows um, zero amount of alcohol is safe for human consumption. That is the line from the World Health Organization. Do you want me to say it again? Zero amount of alcohol is safe for human consumption. That is the line. And our government guidelines haven't caught up quite yet. In Canada, they just reissued their guidelines um, from 2011. And the new guidelines say that up to two drinks per week is a low risk for cancer, zero is better. Two standard drinks a week maximum if you want to keep your cancer risk increase low. That's the Canadian guidelines now for alcohol. We're still on like seven or ten drinks a week is like okay. And it's absolutely not. If you want to talk about like what alcohol does in your body. So again, right, you go, I love my wine. I used to love, I loved wine. Are you kidding me? I loved my wine. I loved my champagne. I loved my freaking shots, man. I loved it all. But when I realized that it was literally killing me and it was going to reduce my time on the planet and I realized I had a purpose on this planet that I wanted to be here for a while for, it really hit home and I was like, everything's a fucking trade-off. Here's the trade-off. I will forego the wine to have my future health and my future self. And it's that simple. And everyone, I think at some point, will get to the moment where they realise that that is the trade-off they're willing to make. And until then, enjoy your wine. Knock yourself out. But I feel like the, the conversation is really turning around now and the narrative is like sobriety isn't weird anymore. Because sobriety isn't this like bunch of cowboys going like we're anti-institution, we're rebellious. Like sobriety now is about um, finding your best and sober self, showing up and being your authentic self, living in your truth and actually sitting in your vulnerability, feeling your feelings, processing your shit, dealing with your trauma. And when you can do all of those things, it's like, Alcohol is that multi-tool of coping. We're not here to cope with shit. We're here to deal with stuff. And when you deal with it, you can show up and be as evidenced by my last eight years on the planet, the very, very best. My life is exploded with goodness because I stopped drinking. And I loved my wine too. Don't get me wrong. It was hard to give up. It was a real struggle. But I did that struggle and I feel like the trade-off was so well worth it. I want to talk about, okay, so we can't deny that alcohol 
can cause cancer. We, we can't deny it. However, what we can do is um, block it out. I think that there are a lot of people who hear the big impact things like that and they go, la, 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 that would be me. I mean, at the older you get, the more you do realise that fucking dying from cancer is fucked. However... What I find can sometimes be more effective is talking about the little things. So, okay, lung cancer and smoking, right? Yes. But when you talk about fine lines and smoking, um, whatever the ones around the lips are or, um, you know, um, patches on the skin, there's quite the response in people giving a shit. Can we talk about um, calories and skin and fitness? Yes. One time my friend said to me, um, she she actually had a significant problem with alcohol, which, again, was really easy for me to excuse um, her right to quit alcohol, but not mine because I didn't have a problem with alcohol. But she mm-hmm. said to me, do you know what, Tori, do you know what really helps me on some days when I just would love to pour a wine? I remember that a glass of wine is the same as having a like medium or miniature um, Mars bar. And she was like, you wouldn't sit there and have three or four of them and have dinner and have dessert, would you? Because what would happen, like if you did that, you'd be like, well, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow looking good. I'm not going to wake up tomorrow, um, you know, slimmer than I would like, let's, let's take it, like let's take it to the aesthetics and skin. Like even just looking at you now, how old are you? 43. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. All right. I'm quitting the booze. Okay. 43 years old, doing breakfast radio. A mother. You you do actually glow. And I just oh, think that we should talk about the fact yeah. that perhaps it's because eight years ago you stopped poisoning yourself. I don't right. want to say it, but it's. True, isn't it? It's the truth, girl. Um, it's 43. <laughs> yeah, I know. Do you do stuff? Like, do you? No, I, no. Botox and stuff? Yeah. No, I'm not. I might one day, but no. I'm I can see your forehead um, moving. I do love a forehead that moves. I, um, um yeah. Look, that's another face. conversation. <laughs> so there's invisible benefits to quitting drinking, like lower cancer risk. Um your liver will recover, your body will start processing food better, you can avoid stuff like leaky gut, all invisible inside internal bodily function stuff. Um, your brain will work better, invisible benefits. Then there's the vanity benefits. And I'm and I look, if it's gonna lead somebody to their sober self, and that's the motivation, we are a beauty obsessed generation. Um, and I think there there are physical benefits that you can see. Uh, on your face, on your body, on your skin, that um, taking the poison out of your daily duty is, you know, it's going to be, they're, they're evident. So what about the, ca- let's talk about like calories for people who like that for them would be, yeah, um, okay, that would so, stick for them. So if you're into your macronutrients and, and all of that jazz, like if you're a calorie counter, alcohol is just liquid calories so you've got calories but zero nutrition so it's like would you eat a ton of like I don't know just highly processed like high calorie zero nutrition um that's what alcohol is it's like it's a liquid it goes in it's got a shit ton of calories in it and it's going to give you no nutritional benefits so 
it will uh, slow down your digestion. It will um, slow down the way your body processes other foods. And then what it does, um, I spoke to a, um, a dietitian about this, is I can't remember the technical term, but alcohol just makes you crave shit food. So not only have you smashed like hundreds of additional calories, so think about that in exercise per minute, like you're going to have to do like a couple of Ks on a treddy to get back to normal after a glass or two of wine, right? If you're going calories in, calories out. I mean, oh, look, I'm not a calorie counter, but, um, yeah. yeah, that sounds about right. So, so you've got all these additional calories. Um, so you want to get back to normal, so you've got to burn those all off. I don't – some people live by this and, and that's fine. But it also what it also does is it then, like, secretes all of this shit in your body that makes you want bad food to, like, soak up the alcohol. So no one – is getting laced on flipping laybacks and then having a salad at three in the morning. Everyone's at the kebab shop ordering pizza, having deep fried food. Like it's so, it's like a double whammy of like hectic caloric shit going into your body with no nutritional benefits, which is not ideal. You look at any dietitian or nutritionist and say you want, you need protein, 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 protein. And if you're going to have high calorie, you want um, high fat and you, so high protein, high fat, um, low processed food, uh, whole or ancient grains. If, if you're going to go with grains, do the whole or the ancient ones and make sure it's super nourishing food and alcohol isn't food. And then people are like, oh, but it's just grapes. <laughs> I'm like, but would you eat 14,000 kilos of grapes? No. Do you know how many grapes it takes to make a bottle of wine? Oh. You're not going to sit there and eat that many grapes. So you cannot use that on me at all. And the other thing that, and this is what I found so weird when I quit drinking, Tori, is my sugar cravings went hectic and I was always like I'll have a glass of wine I don't do dessert person yeah hello I'm healthy yeah I'm a red wine don't give me that yeah babe yeah that's me and that's a lot of people that I know it's like literally a point of pride like so much I don't eat shit but just give me a glass of wine (laughs) there's so much sugar in wine and in alcohol like not in the alcohol because alcohol is ethanol it's poison but everything we put with it so you have a bourbon and coke so you're drinking a shit ton of soft drink and we know how sugary soft drink is and how bad gin and tonic i mean because i I know see i I know a lot of people who are purists and they're like i would never have a bourbon and coke but i would have my red wine or i would have my g and t tonic is I, I was quite. I, I've never so been a sugary. fan of tonic. It's just, it's the same as Coke for anyone out there who's having it's a G and T. It's not skip the tonic. It bad yeah. for you. So the sugar, and so we know that sugar's not great either. So you again, you've got these empty calories, these liquid calories that have no nutritional value, and you're like ingesting tons of sugar and it just sends your whole digestive system into overload, and then we start fat storing, and then and then if you think about it. You know, you wake up at three in the morning with crippling anxiety or anxiety going like, who did I text? What did I do? Where are my undies? What the fuck's going on? And I think that anxiety releases the stress hormone, which is cortisol, and cortisol is a fat storer. So it's like you go out, you treat your body like rubbish, you wake up at 3 a.m., you have these huge panic attacks because you've acted like a complete dick, and then your body is going to fat store to cope with 
the mess that you've provided with yourself. Or, so, or can we even take it back, Maz? Can we not even, like, because a lot of people, again, I just keep thinking about the people who are listening to this. They're going to be going, I don't do that. I don't go out. I'm not going out. Oh, till, sure. I'm not going out till two in the morning. And But are you going to bed and, like, basically, if we're frank about it, passing out or falling asleep very quickly because you've consumed alcohol, mm. are you then waking in the night? Is your mind racing? Like, can we put two and two together and go, like, because doesn't, haven't I read studies, and I'm hoping that you can confirm this way, I know that you're not a scientist, but I know that you've done a lot of reading and a lot of interviews yourself with professionals. Mm. From my understanding, alcohol will get you to sleep, but then you'll, you will wake up because your body needs to process that alcohol. So, um, okay. Okay, so um, so your body, there's four stages of sleep. Um, the fourth stage of sleep is REM sleep. That's a rapid eye movement sleep, and that's your deep sleep where you dream. And the more time you spend in REM, the better. And alcohol, um, it gets you to that first stage of sleep, and then it keeps you there, and it stops you going into your REM sleep. And then usually if you have had uh, any liquid before bed, you will wake up. Uh, to go to the bathroom or you will come out of your sleep stages quicker. You won't be on that 90-minute, 45-minute, 90-minute cycle of sleep that we have. I think it's 90 minutes. Is it one? I think it depends on the type of sleep. Yeah, so from the first stage down to second, third, fourth and back around, it's like I think it's a 90-minute cycle. Either way, um, any amount of liquid is going to bring you. So basically what alcohol will do is, yeah, it will get you your head on the pillow, but you will not be um, having any level of sleep quality. And so it's great to ha- to be in bed for eight hours, but what is your sleep health and your sleep quality? That's more important. So as much as I, and I used to do it too, like glass of wine just to knock me out, just to get me off to sleep, but then the disruption in the sleep and the fact that you're not going to spend the uh, longest amount of time in that deep REM sleep, which is the restorative sleep, which is when all the healing happens in your body, which is when you can process all of the shit and toxins and your body can go into repair mode, you're skipping it. So you're actually doing yourself a massive disservice because you're not letting your body do what it's supposed to do when you have that deep sleep. So you just sort of, you're just cutting yourself short. You know what I mean? And even though, again, that's an invisible benefit. When you stop drinking, and this is my challenge, like if you don't think you have a problem, then great, like stop drinking for a month or two and then let's talk about it because you will notice you'll get all the invisible benefits and be like, shivers, I feel so much better. And if you didn't have a problem, why wouldn't you just want to feel better? Do you know what I mean? Like without it being this big thing that you have to stop doing, um, you could casually just stop and it doesn't have to be this big deal. But I think I agree with you. There's some people that are like, don't take away my wine. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, then I think you have a dependence, babe. And we need to, and even though it doesn't look like alcoholism to you or alcohol use disorder, or you're not chaotic, you're not leaving Las Vegas, it's just a glass of wine every single night. Think about the knock-on negative impacts that's having on your health, on your skin, on the way your body function works and your brain chemistry works. Take it out of the equation for a month or two. Tell me how much better you feel. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of people are Um, and it's just really difficult because it's deeply ingrained, it's 
widely accepted and it's I think the biggest thing is it's an easy fix and we see this in the fitness and the diet industry why do people still buy into fad diets why do people still not pull their finger out of their butt and just get up and exercise and eat relatively healthy and get some sleep because it's not as easy as grabbing something on the go and forgetting for a second uh, that that bottle of processed, you know, whatever juice or that packet of something is full of shit. Like it's just the human condition is that we are lazy. And I think that there are people who have figured out some parts of their life and then alcohol is that one sort of vice. And I guess that's, I do think that there's probably a lot of people in our audience, including me, like I really want to make it clear that like I'm not, sober and I I definitely am including myself in this group where Mm. I'm kind of sticking my head in the sand around the fact that you know when I'm not like I said when I'm not pregnant I'm regularly consuming something that actually just isn't doing me any good and I do of course I'm a believer in balance and you can't you know you can't do everything perfectly like you know sugar's not good for you but if I can eat chocolate and I love an ice cream from now and then I guess the 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 reason that I wanted to accommodate this conversation was to to actually talk about the fact that it is bad for you and maybe talk about some ways that people can reduce like not everyone's going to be mass competent not everyone's just no one uh, some people just don't have the discipline and some people don't Mm. have the interest um but what what can we do to reduce the alcohol to see possible positive changes so i know you said um you know my whole life improved but can you give me a couple of tangible pieces or like stories or, or 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 little tidbits about what actually improved physically and mentally relationships wise when you stop drinking. Yeah. Well, firstly, just to, just for because I want you to answer this question just between us. I want you to have a think about like everything's a trade off. So you know that it's bad, but what purpose is it serving for you? Have a think about why truly why you drink alcohol in the small amounts on the odd occasion that you do, what is it giving you? Because once you kind of can unpack that, then you can have a conversation about what it is that's masking or serving for you, right? So even though there's all these negative things, it has to be serving some purpose in your life. Otherwise, why would you do it? Mm -hmm. So whether it's a feeling or whether it's acceptance or whether it's um, denial or, or of whatever, right? For me, do you know what? This is really interesting. So uh, this is a line that I have repeated several times in this pregnancy. Um, I've said um, I don't necessarily miss, like, the drinking. Obviously, I'm not missing, like, going out and partying. I'm too fucking busy and tired and mummy world for that. But I have consistently said what I miss is that feeling of finishing the day with a glass of wine, particularly when I'm cooking or particularly when I'm in a social environment, the feeling is A, one of um, relief and relaxation and B, also um, I'm really into the ceremony of things and the ritual of things and the kind of, I guess it's like treating yourself because there's not much, particularly in my life right now where I am as a business owner and a mother, there's not much that's actually about me and that is me giving myself a little treat. And and that 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 glass of wine is like, this is about me now. Um, so that's the answer to your question. Um, 
before we move on. Could you replace it with something else? So I had this conversation with a friend the other day and I was like, just talking, you know, he's similar sitch, like he's, he's a dude, he drinks occasionally, he loves his wine, but nothing outrageous. He's a dad, you know, and I was like, what is it about wine that you love so much? And he's like, oh, it's just the feeling it gives me. I'm like, okay. So you know that's manufactured. Like you know that you can do other things to give yourself the, that same feeling. I said, so, because I was like, give me your perfect scenario. And he's like, like date night, like um, beautiful sun setting glass of red. I'm like, take the glass of red out of it. What's changed? He's like, I'm like, you're still on your date night with the person that you love. You're still watching the sunset and it's magical and beautiful. What is it about the alcohol that changes that scenario that makes it so much better? And it's just our attachment to it. And you can put any other thing that could be more beneficial in your hand that can still give you relief and validation of hard work. It sounds to me like Mm -mm. you're you're like end of the day. I've earned this. I deserve this, but you deserve better than alcohol. And so it's just a reframe on what you attach value to. And along the journey in your, in your world, in your business owner and a busy mom and a wife and so many things to so many people, somewhere along the line, your attachment became alcohol equals good job, Tori. And, and if you, you can rewrite that script you can actually change that narrative by attaching good job Tory to something else that's actually beneficial or going to be better for you. But that's just food for thought, not to psychoanalyze. Just, no, you know, no, no, no. And like we'll the, have the conversation. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I also think it's important, like I'm asking you all these personal questions, like the whole point of this podcast is to facilitate like a really raw, open conversation. Yeah, I love it. It's not really appropriate for me to have these guests on and not share like where I'm yeah. coming from all of it. Um, okay, so we to got a little benefits? sidetracked. Yeah, benefits. Yeah. I really want to hear them because I think this benefits, is this benefits. is this is the kind of thing that people people need to hear. Um, because you know, oh, we don't want to give up our beloved wine unless we're gonna get other treats in other ways. Yeah, so for me, um, so benefits wise, it was about day twenty-two. January 22, somewhere around there, first month of not drinking, I, like, legitimately woke up with a new brain. I woke up that morning and I felt like someone had switched on a light in my head and I felt like before that moment I had been running at, like, a 70% capacity and I thought I was running at 100. I felt like um, my creativity... um, was on a whole new level. This sounds really cheesy, but I was like, did I do the matrix pill thing last night? I felt like the sky was brighter. Like things were just, I could literally smell the roses. And when you dig into why, it's because um, alcohol dulls your senses. And so after about three weeks of not drinking, your senses come back. So I could literally smell the roses. And I and I just felt like everything was just, I was more real. Like I really did wake up and I was like, whoa, is this what I've been missing out on? That's how I felt. It was a really um, defining moment. Not everyone has those moments. Some people just like get on with it. (laughs) And then one day they look in the mirror and they're like, oh my God, my face looks skinnier. And so for me it was when, so there was that. 
And then there was also, so I'm getting sleep all of a sudden after like 20 years of not sleeping properly, I'm getting full sleep. And I think it's this whole sleep's probably the most underrated pillar of health that we have. Um, I was getting good quality sleep, more sleep than I've ever had before. So I would get tired earlier. I would go to bed earlier and I would wake up earlier and that worked for me. So I'd wake up naturally at five in the morning and then I'd get up and go for a walk. And so it was like these knock-on benefits, right? Um, People did say to me like, what are you doing? Because you look great. And I feel like my skin, I never had bad skin, but my skin was patchier. um, And I feel like, yeah, my skin just renewed um, I started working out because I had time. So every time I would normally go to the pub, I went to the gym. So I've never really struggled with my weight, um, but I worked out for um, a different reason pre-quitting drinking. It was always to not get fat. Um, when I stopped drinking, I was working out to find my healthiest self. Like my whole drive and motivations shifted. Mm. So you, I had all of those like physical benefits going on. And then I, and that was really encouraging. I was like, oh my God, this is working. (laughs) Like I feel good. I'm looking better. My brain's working better. My creativity was on a whole nother planet. And I felt like um, for the first time really in my adult life, I had the capacity to process some pretty hectic trauma that I'd been through. Um, And I, so I sat with all of those shitty feelings and rather than when they came up having a little glass of wine and popping the lid straight back on again yeah and that was the work and so I journaled um that whole first month I journaled and I kept journaling after and about six months into sobriety I reread my journals and I was like oh there she is oh my god she's so broken oh my god I want to heal her and I had this really like I just had so much compassion for myself after reading where I'd been. It sounds a bit weird, but I had to reread through my journal entries to understand how broken I was and why I drank and why there was no self-love, self-worth, self-care and why there was imposter syndrome and why I didn't value myself and how a divorce at 30 completely railroaded me. And I like, I saw myself as a person who I loved and who I cared about and who I wanted to protect. And then that became, I guess, like the next iteration of motivation to stay sober was like, let's look after this chick because she's fucking cool. And if I can process my trauma and my pain, that's going to help somebody else process theirs. And so that is worth it. So it's a, it's like a, it's like I said, it's like that um, compounded benefits, that progressive revelation. It starts off with a little bit of like, hey, baby, you look good. And you wake up feeling a bit fresh and you lose a little bit of weight. And, you know, and then you but just. it's so much more real than that. Yeah. You hit this, I hit this point where I was like, fuck, I'm so broken. No wonder, no wonder I drank. I mean. Oh my God. And then I went and I checked in and I saw a therapist and that was, that was a really, um, really smart thing for me to do because I was able to go with all of my stuff and go, this is all bubbling up for me. And I'm crying in my car a lot 
and I'm listening to Adele and I don't know what's going on and I'm really sad, but I want to get my joy back. Help me get my joy back. And so um, we went through, we went through a whole series of stuff. We went way back to like shit when I was eight, you know, way back, so far back. But um, when, when you really lay it all out, it's like, I'm never going to judge someone for picking up a glass of wine because we all have stuff. But what I really want to help people do is find other ways instead of the wine that are more beneficial, that are more helpful in helping us um, know thyself um, and grow thyself. And then we can show up and be our best. And I always say best and sober self because I truly, truly, truly believe that your best self is your sober self. I don't know one person who has stopped drinking that said it was a bad idea and started drinking again. I don't, there's not one person I've spoken to and there's probably been hundreds now that have reached out to me or that I've interviewed on my podcast or that I've conversed with. There's not one person that said, yeah, sobriety, nah. Everyone's like, it's a superpower. It's like it will ignite your life. But you've got to, no one can convince you into it or sell no, you, you into can't. it. No, you can't. No, it's like it's for every. it's there on the table and it's for everyone to get there when they want to get there and pick it up when they want to pick it up. And I didn't even know the table existed until I was 34. I um, want to share what's coming up for me. Um, okay, so I've mentioned it a couple of times in pregnancy, I'm not drinking. And I remember in, in our first pregnancies talking to Beck and um, she was pregnant and I was like, you look so fucking good. And she was like, yeah, because, babe, I'm not drinking. And I was like, oh, yeah. She's like, I'm not, I, I wake up fresh and I've actually lost weight in my first trimester because, I mean, if, you, if you're really frank about it, you're not just pouring liquid toxins and totally. calories and sugar down your throat on top of all the other stuff that you consume in a normal day. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's funny, like I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, I wonder how, because I'm like, I'm one of those people who's like, I'm a happy pregnant person. I feel really good when I'm pregnant. I really lean into my creativity and like, don't get me wrong. I don't have easy pregnancies. I fucking vomited for four and a half months straight. I now have a, I have pubic symphysis dysfunction, which means essentially um, I'm in pain pretty much all of the time and I can't walk. Like that's that's the level oh, that I'm dealing honey. with. However, I – and I obviously part of it comes down to the fact that it's the magic of new life and, and, and extreme gratefulness and knowing that you're, you know, you're doing something wild with your body. But yeah. also there is this little, like, thing on my shoulder going, Tori, how much of that, how much of you feeling good? And, you know, everyone says, like, you, you know, people say it's a common – theme people say you glow when you're pregnant people say um that often they they really lean into their creativity or they feel really good and I'm starting to think how many people are experiencing those positive things because um they're not drinking yeah and of course there's a million other things there's hormones and blah 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 but I just I just find the concept really interesting and what is also coming up for me is when I'm pregnant, I am so dedicated to this 
beautiful angel that I'm so lucky to be growing. So I'm very, very conscious about what I put in my body. Um, I'm always thinking, what can I do? What can I eat that, of course, needs to be bloody yummy and delicious? Don't get me wrong. But what can I, how can I best nourish my baby? When I exercise, I'm exercising for my baby and for my body to be strong in labor and recovery. And when I don't drink, it's for my baby because I don't want to damage my baby so what that and that's all well and good and that's widely accepted but like I guess it's like what's just come up to me then is like why aren't I enough when I'm not pregnant you know like what what's do I want to look after and nourish this baby girl aka me and like I'm pretty I'm pretty up there in terms of like um, self-respect and looking after myself. Like I would say that I have a higher than average um, positive relationship with my body and my mental state and my diet and all of that. But still I think there is always work to be done and I want to feel worth it for me. And I actually have really felt in this pregnancy that I have seen that some of the benefits in my life have, have come from, you know, just that quick, you know, you get pregnant, that's it. You stop drinking, done. And I've said to myself, I know that some of this is down to me not drinking. And I've I've in my head, I've said to myself a few times, I really want to try and continue that when I have the baby. When I had Isabella, um, it was locked down and there was definitely months in that period where like I relied so heavily on that drink at the end of the day because you're parenting a very small baby and, you know, I do it all with like, you know, you do it with the breastfeed and you do it at the right time and all that stuff. Like I'm not saying I was just necking wine and had my daughter on the boob, but like I drank with a need and a mm. thirst and I wonder how much better and I had a really good postpartum experience I really really did but I want more maybe mm. I would have made even more milk maybe I would have felt even better and slept even more maybe I would have had even more elation and even more joy um and if I hadn't had a good postpartum experience how could I how could that have been benefited by not drinking it's just I guess that's just really relevant to me right now and it's yeah. such an easy thing where you excuse the not drinking because it's not about you it's about someone else but like it should why isn't it about you why isn't it about me and why isn't it about how I want to better myself and I know so many people in my life my husband is a perfect example like he would not mind me saying this like he openly admits that like you know the booze can leave you just and it's little things, but they add up. The booze can leave you waking up feeling unmotivated. You're not going to fucking drink and then get up and be your best self. Um, you know? I think you've answered your own question and it it really does. And I, I agree with you that it's amazing when you are creating new life in your body. It's, it's a freaking roller coaster. It's a wild, wild ride in the wild, wild west. It's crazy. It's so insane. And most people become pregnant and go, right, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure this baby gets the very best nutrition, the very best start. I want that umbilical cord to just be like thick and stacked with vitamins and nutrients. And we start researching and we like our whole world pivots because we want to take care of this human that we're growing, but we don't 
exercise the same care over ourselves and our own autonomy. And that blows my brain. And I don't know why that is. I just know that that is. And so it would be so amazing if we all loved ourselves so much that we treated our own bodies and our own autonomy with the care and the love and respect that we treat the little people that we bring into this world and like how what how amazing would that be if that is what we see when we look in the mirror but I think what's happened is that alcohol has just become so prevalent and so easy that we we miss that point it's also marketed as self-love like literally it's like oh I love myself I'm going to treat myself with a buying a beautiful bottle of wine like literally that's my thought process it's like I deserve this this is for me yeah it's been overridden by just an industry trying to make money basically that's what it is and so I would love for people to just hopefully that's landed in someone's soul today where they're like oh my god what about just loving me and nourishing me and caring for me because I'm the giver of life and you're that lifeline for that baby for a fair amount of time and I'm pretty sure you want to be around and you're healthiest and your best and And your best even just literally having the energy to get on the floor and play and like actually kind of be present it's the little things Maz I just feel like there's so many things that we didn't get to I've just realized we've almost hit an hour and a half I know maybe we're gonna need another episode on this can we do a part two? I think we should. And maybe do a part two. Okay. I mean, I'm just looking at my questions here. Is there anything, is there anything that look, we've touched on a lot of it. I really want to do my rapid fire questions, which kind of are just Let's off topic it. and just a bit about you. Um, I because that. I really think that you have a lot to share regardless mm-hmm. of your message about sobriety. Um, you have so much more that's to you so um these are completely random these are just things that i would like to know that i reckon the listeners would like to know amazing um we started you know we've we've been a bit mumsy so let's start with that what do you love okay and also share um about your child what do you love most about motherhood oh that is you have a son i have a little boy henry he's nearly four um what do i love about motherhood at the moment it's just looking at my son and seeing me, which is really self-indulgent. But he, Tori, he looks exactly like me. It's so weird. But he's such a boy and he wants a dirt bike for his birthday. Oh, but I love just looking at him and seeing myself in him. And it's like a little part of my heart on the outside of my body dancing around. And it just explodes my my brain every day that I created that with someone. It's, it's just like it's sick. It's the coolest. There's, I love all of motherhood, even the bits that I hate. I love because it's it, like it's just the best. It's the freaking best thing I ever did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hear you. And <laughs> proudest moment in your motherhood journey? Um, proudest moment. So I, I mean, there's been lots, but like, so I had a birth plan. You know, I'm a planner, right? Like I'm. I'm a bit OCD. You're a little bit type A, darling. So type A, it's not funny. So I had a goddamn plan and I was going to get this kid out of my vagina and it was going to, and I was I was like, I'm not having drugs, I'm doing it drug free. And um, and two and a half days into the labour, um, I was told I needed a caesarean and I loved my response. Um, I went, 
well, I have done all that I can do. Now get this child out of me and make sure he is safe. And I just, that to me was like. You'd done the work. It was not about you. It's about the baby. I couldn't do anymore. And I loved that I let it go. I let the plan go. And I was like, that's what parenting is. It's all about letting go, man. And like, I had like, I was like, my kid's never going to eat hot chips. He had hot chips for dinner three nights last week because I was busy. Like you, I made all these vows to myself and I just love that I've learned to let them all go. And so for me, it's not necessarily like the most proud, but it was like the first defining moment of my motherhood journey. And and I just loved that like as Henry was born, I was just like, okay, let's just do it, kid. Like whatever we need to do to keep you safe, whatever the plan was can go out the window and I'm okay with that. And that's like a real massive revelation for me to to get to the point where I like stuck the plan in the bin and I was like, okay, cool, whatever, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as someone who who very much um, identifies with that, that that is a huge moment. It's hard to deviate from the plan. It's also hard to like. Um, I don't have problems with self discipline. I have problems with being too hard on myself. Yes. So like, actually, when I give myself a break, I'm like, do me, I did it. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, these are going to get shorter, but there's one more sort of big one. Um, what achievement? outside of motherhood because it's very easy for us to just get totally wrapped up in our identify identities as mothers or parents what achievement outside of motherhood career personal life whatever the fuck it is not sobriety because we've talked about that are you most proud of what's an achievement that you're most proud of Mm. i've taken the two big puppies off the table (laughs) soz um i think something i'm most proud of is probably my um, decision to get back into radio after being really, really burnt by the industry. So in 2015, I lost my job in radio and it was really hard. And it's not because I did anything silly. It's just because there was a change in management and a a brand redirection of which me and my co-hosts at the time were not included in. And it was really shit. And it took me a really long time to get over that. And then, um, yeah, five years later or so, I've moved to the Central Coast and I've had a baby and my old, um, one of my old managers from Sydney rang and was like, hey, I've heard you're on the Central Coast. We need someone to fill in for someone who's going on mat leave. Would you be interested? And at first I said no because I was too scared. I was like, no way. Like I'm not putting myself out there again. I am not going to like why would I do that? Like, why would I go there? Why would I go back to the company that publicly humiliated me that like brought up so much pain and anxiety and stress and like I, my career ended there. Right. And then I had to think about it and I was like, shit, damn it. I can't tell my son to grab life by the balls if I'm not going to do it myself. And so I rang him back and I was like, Hey, I've had to think, and I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to lean in, and I'm going to go and be scared and vulnerable, and I'm going to see if I can still do this thing that I'm terrified to do. And it worked out really well, and I'm really proud of that because I was so close to saying no, and then I don't even know what I'd be doing. 
Fuck yeah. I just love this question. Um, this is a new thing, these rapid-fire questions that I've included in this They're new really season. Good. And I, I just love, love it. Like I'm I'm such a hype girl and I just love hearing people's answers. I love hearing women own something that they're proud of because it is something that we are still getting better at. And in the spirit of International Women's Day, which it is, oh, yeah. on the day of recording this podcast, I love. fucking love that. You go, girl. Okay. These are going to just get a little bit more lowbrow now. Okay. Maz, when do you feel sexiest? Oh, never. <laughs> what? Have you seen yourself? Are you really? You don't feel sexy. I, you're very um, sexy. I think you're sexy. Thank you. I think everyone's sexy. I don't think. I not, don't not trying to take know. away from your sexiness. I'm just saying Thank I reckon you. everyone has sex appeal. I... I don't know. My myself, like I'm working on this definitely. You ask my husband that question and he'll give you like 20 answers. But I really have um wrestled with being sexy and 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 even in our relationship it's something that I really have to like <gasps> Like, really? Yeah. You're yeah, so confident. Do you know what it is, though? Yeah. Your confidence is very much in a, a larrikin kind of way. You're not embracing your femme, are you? That's no, what's happening. No, I'm so, I'm so masculine in that sense. Uh, my husband would be devastated when he hears that. But, <laughs> um, but it's something that I, I'm working on and I, I am getting better. I'm getting better at and I'm um, I'm trying to embrace it's def that is definitely a work in progress so it's again like hey we've all got stuff to work on that's something that I'm working on well I have a question like what is it that makes you when that the the when you're leaning into that like oh I should get a bit sexier like do I feel a bit sexy and I'm assuming inside you go oh no I'm not sexy that's not me what what do you reckon it is that's that's doing that I think it's like uh, the mass appeal of me is the girl next door and the little sister vibe. Mm. And so I feel like I've really been treated as um, a little sister and like by a lot of men in my life. So I've, I've always gotten along well with guys and um, for the most part they haven't found me sexy. They found me to be like super cool to hang with, super easy to chat to and, and, and really good to get advice from. And so it's just uh, because I've been programmed that way. It's that like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're telling yourself, I'm I this am. person. Right, that's, that's so interesting. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. And so I think it is just about rewiring my brain to, and it's, you know what, it's really tricky being a woman because it's like you, you your partner's friend and confidant and you are each other's house cleaners and then all of a sudden you have to, like, get sexy with each other. And it's, like, it's really difficult to put all the different hats on, especially when, you know, there, there's some layers of complexity there. And so I really, it is, and my love language is acts of service. So Which I'm plays like, into that even more, like your so, role as an equal partner and supporting it to you. Right. right. If, my, if my predominant love language was touch, I think this would be way easier because I'd be like, Let's get it on. But it's not like I'm I'm really like I'm an acts of service person. And so the way I process love is doing things and and being sexy isn't one of them, right? Mm. So again, like I just think it it is it's a bit loaded, but like I'm happy to have the conversation and be vulnerable because it is something that I like at 43, I'm like, man, there's this whole like 
joy of intimacy thing that I feel like I've somehow missed the the memo on that I really want to um, explore and embrace. And acknowledging um, sexiness is is a really big part of that and, and a really a challenging one for me. But again, work in progress, getting there. Oh God, see, this is what this podcast is all about. And thank you for answering, honestly. It would have been really easy for you to slap an easy radio reply on that. And I think that what's really cool <laughs> what about this... You mean? <laughs> I think this, this interview is like, it is a total... This is like the real Maz Compton because you're, yeah. you know, the people who listen to your show, this is... This is a completely different side. Um, my love language is all of them. Um, I'm one of those annoying people. I, I do all of them and I, I appreciate and, and you know, sometimes expect all of them. Um, I reckon one, one thing to keep in your mind when you're like, how do I flip this from, from you know, co-parent and co-house organiser to, to lover is like I, tr- I always think about Chris as like my husband, Chris, like I love all of him and 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 I'm trying I don't know how to articulate this but like so when we're in bed it's I haven't like turned off the side of him that I work with every day and I haven't turned off daddy and I haven't turned off you know um, the guy who I was annoyed at for putting a can of tuna in the fridge uncovered I've it's sort of like I love you and I embrace all of you and my soul wants you flaws and all and part of me wanting you and loving all of you is by wanting to like um be intimate with you Um, yeah god that's there's a lot we could go into there I love that least sexy when do you feel least sexy this will probably be easier for you to answer Oh, day, girl. Uh, <laughs> no, it's usually when um, least sexy is just in the summertime when it's hot, um, and I'm like just racing around, just being, just being mum, just in my, just in my denim, and just it's just, when I'm hot, it's muggy, and my hair's crap, and I'm sweating a bit, and I'm just like. And I've got like bags of shopping and you're just like, your world great isn't this the spice of life, you know, like mm-hmm. when you're just in full mum mode. Um, so I prefer the winter uh, because I don't sweat as much. <laughs> yep. yep. That's a very reasonable answer. Okay. What is in your fridge every single week without fail? Uh, dog food because we have a dog. <laughs> uh, Happy is his name. Oh, He's a Cavoodle cross that's Kelpie. That's a wonderful Sweetest name little for thing a in dog. My life. Love him so much. Um, my actually Henry named Happy Happy oh. because we had a really tragic year last year as a family, like awful. And at one point, I was like, I don't think I can take another curveball like I there's so much grief there's so much I lost my dad lost my best friends awful but um Glenn was like should we get a dog and and I'd been shutting it down for years and I was like maybe we should get a dog that is honestly it's a very healing healthy decision to do that we said to Henry we're like hey buddy like if we got a puppy dog um what do you think that we should name it and he said let's call it happy and I was like let's get a dog um so we got happy and he bought Troy so dog food in the fridge um there's also some like really uh old bone broth that I made out of a chicken carcass (laughs) that's still there uh that shouldn't be there Uh, it's there every week without fail not because you keep buying it but because you haven't thrown it out out. and I didn't consume it and it's beyond its use by date um there's lactose-free milk because I'm 43 
<laughs> and things just changed a bit in your 40s. Um, what else is there? Like the staples, like I've got a kid, so there's like butter and cheese and Vegemite. Oh, Vegemite's in the pantry. Oh, Vegemite. Um, you can't get through a day without Vegemite in our house. I love and it. And then there's a fruit drawer with apples, mandarins, bananas, passion fruits, and there's a veggie drawer with veggies for our and segment everything out like a weirdo. Um, there's some Dijon mustard in there. <laughs> love mustard. I love how you've just told me the contents of your fridge and I just wanted to know one thing that you're really into. <laughs> like, I can keep going. I'm going to cut you off. No, please don't. <laughs> okay, what's your death row meal? Oh, seafood platter for two. Oh, oh, yummy with like hot chippies and prawns and a oh, little bit I of like battered that. fish. I want raw. No, I want raw. Oh, all cold, raw, everything. All raw, okay. all cold. Sashimi, oysters, mm, sashimi. prawns, like or kingfish or raw seafood platter, but enough for two people because I would eat that much. Mm-hmm, Love mm-hmm. raw seafood. Oh, my God. I It's like kind of embarrassing to admit that, but in my pregnancies, I just crave sashimi. And I'm someone who feels very comfortable eating it, you know, from a really right. reputable place. Um, so it's really funny because people are always like, Tori, what the fuck are you just out there yeah. eating sashimi when you're pregnant? I'm like, Isn't that it's, what you're not supposed to eat? It's good for you. It's not like the women in Japan aren't eating it. That's just my – that's it's my – where I feel comfortable. I'm not advising people eat sashimi. That's just where I'm at. Um, Okay. Two more questions and we are done. A cringeworthy moment that your brain reminds you of when you're trying to sleep at night. You know that thing in your brain's like, hey, remember this? Hey, remember this? Oh, there's so many. No, um, (laughs) cringeworthy moment. It's more, uh, is it cringe or is it just embarrassing? Like I, um... When I was doing MTV, I was so I was hosting a live after party show. So uh, live on camera, and my and I had like these ten girls that had won VIP tickets to meet and greet with Snoop Dogg, and I so I was on camera, and I was like and here we are uh, with the girls, and we're about to head backstage to Snoop Dogg's like green room. Um, for the meet and greet. Here we go, girls. And I spun around on my heel and I lost my footing and I fell literally flat on my face. No, like, like it was, it would have gone viral had TikTok existed back in the day. Sadly for me, social media wasn't at the time. But I, and I bruised my knee so badly and it was. Did you have to get up and just pretend like that you were fine? Everyone, it's like the music stopped, everyone stopped. It was like out of an Adam Sandler movie and I just got back up and my producer was like half fixing herself laughing (laughs) and half like, shit, are you okay? That was really bad. Savage. It was so audible. It was so, and then I just kind of picked myself back up and I was like, Okay, let's go. Okay, let's do this. Limping off. Okay, oh, that's a sometimes, good one. Sometimes, I don't know why, I do recall, like, I don't know, I think about that. And I think because I felt, like, physical humiliation and embarrassment, like that, like, pitting your stomach stuff. So sometimes, I don't know that it keeps me up necessarily, but I do. Your brain likes to bring it up to you from time to time. Yeah, like the brain just goes back and is like, remember that time? The brain, did is, that the brain can be a bitch sometimes. Those heels, it was the heels. The That's heels, a golden the slippery one. floor, it was just. <laughs> <laughs> I 
and you're trying to be all cool. Let's get a snip, Dougie Dougie's boom. <laughs> so cool. Oh, it's so cool. <laughs> and my final question, because we've gone so far over. Um, I love this though. I know. This is exactly why I have, I, I originally had my husband schedule this important lunch at 12 p.m. And I was like, <laughs> I have a podcast at 10. There's absolutely yeah. no way I can make that. <laughs> you need way more time. <laughs> hey, I haven't weed. This is a miracle. I'm 30 weeks pregnant, girl. I have not paused to wait. You, my gosh. It's because the conversation is so engaging. You forgot, your bladder forgot to do its job. Highly engaged. Okay, so finishing up with the OG Peaches podcast question. When we originally started this podcast, I was adamant that we start the podcast with this question because I thought it was like a really nice way to open people up. Okay. What is your pet peeve? Like, you know, something that you're like, I fucking told you. Or, um, you know, something that people do. It could be anything. Yeah. Uh, I reckon you've got a bunch as a Taipei. I've got so many. (laughs) Um, How long do we have? Did you say we've got another two hours to unpack this one question? Good. Um, Don't leave shit around the house. Um, Glenn? (laughs) If you're listening. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's, I, like, surface mess Mm. stuff stuff on surfaces i hate and like and just yes. don't, just don't leave stuff around like even so i've ingrained this so hard into my toddler that he now if he goes into the kitchen and there's a drawer open he will go and close it. love yeah so i'm just all like, like close the doors close the cupboards everything has a home put things away and then we might survive another week you know so yeah um stuff yeah stuff Surface mess. I haven't heard that term, but it is something that I deeply identify with because I'm fine with like shoving shit in a drawer, but I, what I want is my surfaces clear. Um, and I, and, and men like to leave things and Chris always gets annoyed with me because I put, put things away. He's like, where did you tidy that thing? I was going to use that. Yeah, and it, it's a bit of a double-edged sword too because as like a, a really hardcore tidy or opera, um, I now cop text messages and phone calls about like where's so-and-so and I'm like I can't go where you left it because I know I moved it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep, 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 but then yep. I'll also, do you know the other pet peeve? Oh, my God. Okay, I've got two. So the surface mess. Um, which I think is kind of under control in my house because I've been a bit of a tyrant about it, so that's good. But um, the other thing is the learned incompetence. So, like, the, oh. um, if I get a – if I – sometimes, like, Glenn might be in the kitchen and I might be in the lounge room and he'll walk out of the kitchen into the lounge room to go, where is uh, the so-and-so? Like, wh- like where, where are the licorice all sorts, for example? And I'm like – Did you look? It has taken you more time (laughs) to walk from where you were standing literally at the pantry door to walk past the fridge door, which are really the only two options, to come all the way to me in the lounge room to ask me a question which you could actually answer yourself. Um, So that really frustrates me. Um, But then also that's my fault because I've yelled at Glenn so many times for like just putting things in the wrong place that he's probably just scared to look. (laughs) 
I think there are a lot of women out there who are pushing their husbands to learned incompetence. I, I can, agree because yeah. they're too scared. And I, so it is actually, I, I'm kind of joking and putting a bit of mail. You're story, the problem, like, Maz. I, I will <laughs> that I am the problem. Um, and Glenn is probably just doing it because he's like, oh, my God, I don't want to upset her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's all so relatable. Oh my God, Maz, that was, it was a true, it was, it was such a pleasure. I was, I was truly engaged and on the edge of my seat the whole time. Thanks, babe. There's never long enough chatting with you. Um, it's really easy doing this with someone who's a radio host because, um, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're good at what you do. Um, Thanks, but thank babe. you. Thank you for showing us a side of yourself that you, you know, that isn't part of radio personality, Maz. Um, I think mm. that's really cool. And um, maybe I'll have you back to unpack um, yes. unpack the real Maz Compton, the Maz Compton who doesn't feel sexy, the Maz Compton who started having therapy when she became sober. Like, I want to know more about that. I am so keen for a part two. I have loved reconnecting with you. I'm so excited that you're growing another human because uh, I just feel like you put good ones on the planet. And you're just, you're deli- you've always been delightful and it's just, it's been a real treat and I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. All right, over and out. I'm going to hit, I'm going to turn off the record button. Thank you for tuning in, Peaches, and we'll talk to you soon. 